welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When the shaking starts, what do you want to hold on to? Something shakable or something unshakable? Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the Hebrews 12 series, Unshakable Kingdom, with this sermon entitled Embracing the Unshakable Kingdom, which covers Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 to 29. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 12, verses 25 to 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Penny. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen and amen. Well, since, uh, since college football officially kicked off yesterday, and for most of our schools, I would assume, if you follow it at all, you, by the way, somebody asked me one time in membership class, do you, uh, do you have to be a follower of college football to join this church? <laughs> and uh, Eric, I think maybe Eric got that question, or I did. One of us did. I can't remember. And uh, immediately said, no, you do not have to know anything about college football. So forgive me if I talk about it way too much. Um, but in light of it kicking off, I feel like it's appropriate to share in, in, uh, in that vein. When I was leading CREW, the campus ministry of CREW at the University of Alabama, was there from 08 to 15. Um, we had a number of students involved, and, and some of them were football players. And one of those football players is a guy that you might, if you follow football, recognize his name. His name is Barrett Jones. He was an All-American in Alabama. And in his four years there, this is a little bit of a humble, humble brag as an alumni there, like I had anything to do with it. But in his four years, won three national championships, which is incredible. And no applause, that's okay. Um, <laughs> and Barrett's a dear friend. We, we became very close. I just ate dinner with him and his wife and family just when I was in Memphis back in June. And, and um, it's so good to know a brother in Christ that has lived uh, his life so, so for the Lord in that context. However... I'll never forget, after the first national championship, he, uh, he was a young guy, 19, 20 years old, but he had walked with the Lord for a number of years and had represented Christ well on that team, and I'll never forget, after that first championship, talking to him and what he told me. He told me the story of how, after the game was over, they had won this championship in the most storied stadium in college football history, the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, and 
And they're standing on the podium, and he's up there. They, they brought this podium out to present the national championship trophy. And back then, it was the BCS trophy, which was, looked like a crystal football. It was a crystal football. And uh, everyone, all the players were passing it down until it eventually made it to Barrett. And he was watching it being passed down the line. And the typical way that it would go is that the player would get it passed to him. And he'd look at it, and he'd kiss it, and he'd lift it up, and he'd yell in jubilation and then pass it on. And so Barrett's waiting for it to come to him, and as it makes it to his hands, he does something very similar and, you know, kisses it, raises it up, gets a picture taken with it, you know, looks at it again and passes it on. And I'll never forget him telling me, we were talking the week after that championship, and he said, uh, he said it was the oddest feeling. We had worked so hard, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, all the stuff to get to this point, and it was awesome, it was great, it was fun, but he said, I'll never forget when I passed it on and watched it go down the line, I just kind of looked around, confetti falling, all the things, and he just went, well, I guess that's that. What do we do now? I guess we'll go back and try to do it all over again. And, and he told me this. This is the part that I won't forget, the words, exact words he used. He said, it felt so very fleeting. Now, there's so much good about sports and about winning championships. That's something to strive for. But to keep it in its proper perspective, like Barrett was, his ability to, in that moment, even as a young believer, to be able to say, you know, it is what it is. It's fleeting. And if I look to that to give me meaning and purpose, so forth, I'm going to be really disappointed. It's a, it's a microcosm. It's, it's in the grand scheme of, of life, you know, a football trophy is very uh, minimally important. But it is a microcosm of kind of the rest of life in, in, in this way. Most the majority of our tangible experiences in life are shakable. Here's what I mean when I say shakable, in the context of this passage today, and really in the context of the whole series, when I say shakable, I mean primarily, I want you to keep two things primarily in mind. I want you to think fragile and fleeting. Fragile and fleeting. So let's say that again, what I just said a moment ago. The majority of our tangible experiences in life are shakable. They're fragile. They're fleeting. And, when, and that's the reality. When that's the reality, here's the problem. It, it causes us to really struggle as Christians. If you're a follower of Christ, it causes us to really struggle with securing ourselves deeply, squarely in the unshakable kingdom of God. And so when I say unshakable, in comparison to shakable, shakable, remember, is is, is fragile and fleeting. When I say unshakable, really, we're saying the opposite of that. We're saying strong and eternal. Shakable is fragile and fleeting, unshakable, strong and eternal. Here's the struggle, though. Part of the struggle is, remember what I said, most of our, here's the word, tangible experiences in life are shakable. It's what we feel. It's what we see. It's what we experience. What's What's the struggle about the kingdom of God, the unshakable kingdom of God, is that it has to be seen with eyes of faith. The world can't see it. We only see it through the redeemed work of Jesus. And his kingdom, his presence, the kingdom of God, 
dwelling within us in, in a way such that we're able to actually be squarely secured in his kingdom that is indeed strong and eternal and unshakable even in the midst of all this unshakable reality or this shakable reality. Because let's be honest, things feel very, very shakable right now. And I don't just mean out there. I mean, that's a no-brainer. You look at the culture and society around us and things, things aren't good. It feels very shakable, but, but, but I even mean within the church. Within the church, things feel very shakable. I want to introduce you to a book that just came out. One of the authors is a good friend of mine that we got to serve together on crew for many years on staff together. It's a great book called The Great Dechurching. Subtitle is Who's Leaving? Why Are They Going? And what will it take to bring them back? And that last part is what I love most about this book. It's not just all this data, tons of data, tons of statistics on what's happening with people leaving the church. But that last part, why are they leaving and what can be done to bring them back? There's great hope, actually, in this endeavor, in this reality. But let me just read to you a few things as they lay the foundation at the beginning of the book of some of the realities that we're facing and the shakable nature of what feels to be very shakable about the church right now. One of the things they say is this, in the last 25 years, more people, more people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the first great awakening, second great awakening, and the Billy Graham crusades together, all together. More people have left in the last 25 years than all of those who came into the church through those three endeavors. Another thing that they mention is this, they say that, um, they say that this, for the first time in the Gallup poll eight-decade history, Gallup poll has been tracking church involvement and so forth for 80 years. For the first time in 80 years, in 2020, church membership fell below 50% in the United States. There are more people in the United States now not going to church than are going to church. First time in the 80-year history. One last thing, these are very encouraging, I know. Um, one last thing they mentioned is that you might be tempted to think, well, is this more representative in certain demographics, in, in certain you know, age groups, socioeconomic, racial, whatever, whatever it may be, and they just simply make this sweeping statement. Americans, our studies have shown that Americans at every income level, educational status, and area of the country are deciding to forego their in-person worship for other activities on Sunday morning. It feels shakable. What's happening in the church? You know, uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly how to piece all this together with the greater narrative of this very real de-churching, but I get to meet, I think I've mentioned this to you, to you all, I meet uh, quarterly with a group of pastors here in Atlanta. Uh, there's only five of us, and in the midst of that context, of, of the real, the real de-churching that's happening, we're actually seeing God bring people, more people into the life of the church here in Atlanta. And so there's, there's always many narratives with the meta-narrative. And so we, we have to kind of pay attention to both. But the bottom line is this. When we look at that meta-narrative, and it's, it's real, it's true. Statistics show us, data shows us, there's been a great exodus in the church over the last quarter century. And so we could say, man, it feels so very shakable. But here's the reality. The reality that our text and that the Bible as a whole keeps preaching to us 
is that we're not a part of that shakable kingdom. We're actually a part of an unshakable kingdom. And it says in this text, we'll look at it in a moment, that we are recipients of that kingdom. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. There's nothing we did to get it. Jesus did it all for us. And we are the benefactors of a kingdom that is strong and eternal and that will last forever. And so here's the application, the simple yet profoundly difficult application of that reality. If it is true that we are recipients of an unshakable, strong, eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, and here's the application. We, we got to live like it. We got to live like that's true. Like that we know that we know that we know that the kingdom that we're a part of that can't be seen with human eyes or tangibly felt very easily is real and that we're in it and that it's not going anywhere. And that as we sang a moment ago, that the victory is Jesus and in his name, we will reign with him forever and ever. So how do we even begin to do that? Well, this text gives us some guidelines. There's four things that we see in this text that begins to help us, help us to see this is what it looks like to live as kingdom people, to live as those who are indeed a part of an unshakable kingdom. And here's the first one, verse 25. Listen to him who is speaking. Listen to him who is speaking. Let me read verse 25 again. It just says this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him, who warns from heaven? The they he's talking about is he's continuing the theme of last week where he was talking about the Israelites. At the, at the base of Mount Sinai, when God gave the law through Moses. And when God gave the law through Moses, at the top of Mount Sinai, the mountain shook. Howard talked about this last week for us. Led us in this reality. The mountain shook such that they were terrified. Because the presence of God in, in the presence of those, a holy God in the presence of those who aren't holy is a terrifying thing. And the mountain shook and it, it created with it this uh, reverberating reality that he is God and we're not. And as he gave the law to them, it came with some instructions to basically say, obey the law. Now, what we learn is, is scripture reveals itself over the course of the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament is that Apart from the power of Christ in us, the Holy Spirit within us, we can't obey the law. It actually exposes our sin and shows us the, the standard that just can't be met. And somebody has to meet the standard for us. But the instructions were simply obey the law and seek to please me. And if you want to know how to please God, here it is. Here's the law, the Ten Commandments, which is going to be our next series, by the way. But it wasn't that they couldn't obey the law necessarily as much as it was that they wouldn't obey the law. And they wouldn't obey the law because it's clear within the text they wouldn't listen to God. They wouldn't listen to him. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, look, for if they did not escape when they refused him, meaning they refused to listen to the word of the Lord, if they couldn't escape from 
the discipline and the punishment and the consequences that come from neglecting God's word and not listening to it, if they couldn't escape it when God spoke through Moses, how much more now can we not escape it when God has spoken through his son? Because really, he's making a comparison. The author of Hebrews loves to do this. He does it throughout the book. He, he, he loves to make these contrasts and comparisons, and he, he uses this phrase that, a lot where he says, he'll make a comparison and he'll say, okay, then how much more shall we, blah, you know, yada, 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 and, or how much less shall we in comparison to this? And so in this context, he's saying, look, if they couldn't escape the punishment of God for neglecting his word when, when he was speaking through Moses, a broken vessel, a sinful vessel. How much less will we? How much, we will be all the more unable to escape the judgment of God when we reject not just God's word in written form like the law, but God's word in human form, the Son. Because remember, who did, who did John, how did John help us understand that Jesus is? Who, who is he? Well, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's referencing Jesus. So in rejecting God's Word, not listening to God's Word, refusing to listen to God's Word, we're not just re- rejecting the written Word, which is holy and inspired, but Christ himself, who is the embodiment of the Word of God. Hebrews 1, 1, it starts the whole letter. He starts with this. He says, in past times and in various ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And so in essence, what's the, what, do we, what do we say? Well, what we say is this, to reject, to refuse to listen to God's word is to refuse to listen to God. Three, three ways that we refuse God, and I've already hit on the first one very clearly, is refusing to hear his word. That we'll just put under the umbrella of negligence, just neglecting to, to listen, to hear, to read, to know God's word. Refusal to, to be a people of the book. I mean, we can be so much like the Israelites later on in their history. So there was Mount Sinai early on with Moses, but fast forward several centuries, and now uh, they have been so disobedient and unwilling to listen to God's word over the course of centuries that God has finally had enough. And so he says, judgment is coming from the north, from Babylon. He's very specific, and he's prophesying this through various prophets. But Jeremiah, during that attack from Babylon, he's prophesying through Jeremiah, and no one will listen. He's the word of God. He's the mouthpiece of God, and no one will listen. And he's, he's warning them. He's saying, look, if you continue not to listen, judgment is coming. Well, then it comes, and Babylon ransacks Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is lying in ruins in, a, in an ash heap. And they say, well, we've got to flee to Egypt for protection. And, and he says through Jeremiah again, he says, no, 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 stay here. Stay in this broken down Jerusalem and I'll protect you. But if you run to Egypt instead of to me for protection, then I'm just going to send the Babylonians down there too and they'll, they'll defeat you down there too. And listen to their response. Jeremiah has explained all this to them. This is what they said. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen. But we will do everything that we have vowed. We will make offerings to the queen of heaven. That's an Egyptian goddess. 
and pour out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and so saw no disaster. They're attributing what they thought used to be their protection, not to God, but to false gods and saying, we will not listen to the word of God. And you go, wow, those dumb Israelites. But I just want you to sit and consider how you and I can be the same way. We can convince ourselves that there's certain things that are giving us what we ultimately want and need in the way of protection, the way of success, whatever it may be. And we run to those things such that we actually neglect the word of God that's leading us in a different direction. Let me ask you this question. Who or what are you listening to? Who or what are you listening to? What, what, do, you, what do you say about this book, this word, about Jesus? Do you hold it in such high esteem that it actually leads you in a very countercultural, counterintuitive way to live in a world that is so very shakable? Let me, let me give you just, look, this is, I'm going to warn you. Save the emails, please. I'm going to warn you. Some of you are not going to like what I'm about to say. But I just want to use it as an illustration as to how we can get so discombobulated in what we actually listen to instead of God's word, or at least, at the very least, equate it to God's word. A new study in 2021 by Pew Research determined that one in five Christians, or one in five uh, uh, Americans, one in five Americans right now, as of 2021, believe that the Constitution was a divinely inspired written document on par with the Bible. Please hear me. I love the Constitution. I think it's a great document. It's not God's word. It's not. When we begin to conflate things to protect a man-made kingdom such that we would equate it with the kingdom of God, we're in really, really, really dangerous waters. If you want to know what the seedbed of Christian nationalism is, it's that. It's where we say that I am willing to fight for the kingdom of America more than I am for the kingdom of God. And some will hear this and go, man, that preacher at Perimeter Church doesn't like America. He hates this country. No, no, no. I love my country. I don't want to live anywhere else. I love being a citizen of this country, but it is not my home. We are citizens of the kingdom of God that is unshakable, and we get to live in the present in a shakable kingdom called America. America is shakable, and we have to understand that because when we understand that our feet are securely in the unshakable kingdom of God, then when things go awry in America, we don't, we don't freak out. We don't panic. We carry on in such a way that we, we carry Jesus in such a way that there is a uniqueness about us that the world goes, how are you not panicking? You go, Let me tell you about the unshakable kingdom of God. Let me tell you about Jesus. But we struggle, we refuse oftentimes to hear his word and we begin to equate things. Y'all, there was a, oh Lord. Um, I'll tell y'all, sometimes I'm like, should I say this or should I not? I'm praying right now if I should say it. There's, there's a, there's a candidate that's gonna be running for president that there was a poll done recently and the poll was simply this. 
Who tells you the truth? And of the people that have already identified, I'm going to vote for that candidate. Of those people that have already said, I'm going to vote for that candidate. 71% of those people said, that candidate tells me the truth. Those same people, the very same people said, only 42% of religious leaders tell me the truth. Who or what are we listening to? Now, presuming that that religious leader, let's just say pastor, is committed to the word of God and is preaching God's word to you, are we going to be a people that say, eh, not sure, God's word, maybe. But that candidate, that's truth. Man, we got to be a discerning people. A discerning people. And I fear we're not. Secondly, we refuse to do his word. Those go, in the Bible, those go hand in hand. There is no separation. If you're going to hear his word, you do his word. James said it well. He said, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don't be those who just hear God's word, the truth of Jesus and his unshakable kingdom, and not doers of his word. Lastly, we refuse to recognize the consequences of our refusal. All of these, refusal to hear God's word, we can put under the umbrella of negligence. Refusal to do his word can be under the, 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 the umbrella of, of disobedience. And then the, the refusal to recognize the consequences of our, of our, of our refusal of his word is it's just foolishness. We'll read this a little bit later. God is a, God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. He's not going to just turn a blind eye to those who refuse to hear and do his word. Secondly, in this text, we're taught to labor for things that will remain. Labor for things that will remain. Listen to verses 26 and 27. It says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So he's, again, he's making this comparison between Israel and now. So back then, when the law was given through the tablets, through the, through the Ten Commandments, the earth shook. And then he's quoting Haggai uh, chapter 2, verse 6, where he says, uh, it says this, the prophet Haggai, before Jesus came, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while... I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And so there's really actually a twofold manifestation of this prophecy. One is that as, as, the, as the mountain shook by, back then, there's going to be another mountain that shakes in the future. And that mountain is going to be Mount Golgotha, Calvary. And when, you remember when Jesus died and took his last breath? What happened? The earth split in two. The, the ground shook. The, the veil tore in half so that we now have access to God through the finished work of Jesus. Our sins have been dealt with. And the earth shook, such like Sinai, but even more significantly. And then there's a second way this is fulfilled, fulfilled in saying that this Jesus, who when he died and paid for your sins, the earth shook. He's going he's gonna to return. And when, when he returns, it won't be just the, heaven, or the earth that shakes. It'll be the heavens as well. And when he returns in all of his glory, those who have trusted him and dwelled within his unshakable kingdom will rise to glory with him. 
We are to be a people who labor for the things that will remain. Listen to Matthew 24, 29. Jesus speaking here. He tells us this. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens, here it is, will be shaken. Again, the application is this. You and I have to be people. If we are in Christ, we have to be people who live as the unshakable kingdom residents that we are. Three times in the New Testament, we're told that we're, we're exiles on this earth. I mean, we're, to, we're to care for this place, and we're to love people here, and we are to invest here. Yes, just like the Israelites were told to do in Babylon when they were taken to captivity, captivity there. They were told, yes, invest in this place. Love these people. But it's not your home. It's a fleeting and fragile kingdom that will go away. I mean, the language of the text is so clear. Verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. What does that mean? Well, it's the things that are made. The things that are created by humans that aren't going to last. They matter, but they're not going to last. Why? In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. When Christ returns, he's going to do a purifying work. He's going to come and his consuming fire is going to be such that it, uh, it melts away the dross. It melts away the things that won't last. And it purifies the things that are eternal that will last. And so who are we to be as a people? Well, ultimately, we labor for those things more than anything else. We labor for what will remain. So one might argue with me at this point, understandably, say, well, are you saying then uh, that we are not to be involved in any shape, form, or fashion with life and any, any forms of life, like in, that's not at all what I'm saying. We care deeply. But we keep things in proper perspective. And we have great discernment. Let me read to you a quote from Raymond Brown. He was a former pastor of Victoria Baptist Church in England. He wrote this in 1982. And I, I just tell you that to say, look, he was wrestling through some of the same things then that we are now. Because he said this. He said, Christians are alert to what is happening in the world. But the news does not fill them with fear. Conscious as they are of political instability and social pressures, economic hazards, religious apostasy, physical hardship, and moral decay, they do not despair. Their trust is in God, and they are safe. So here's what I'm saying. This is the way that unshakable kingdom mindset plays out, in my opinion. I'm just going to read this to you, something I wrote earlier this week. What this means is this, when what is shakable is shaken, when what is breakable breaks, when what is fragile crumbles, the Christian who is securely planted in the unshakable kingdom of God doesn't fear or break or crumble. Listen to this, there is a humble confidence that permeates the Christian existence. A humble confidence, but, listen, but don't miss this next statement. Humble confidence in the unshakable and eternal kingdom of God is very different very different than fatalistic naivety. What I'm not saying is this. Oh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. God's in control, so we don't care about those things. We're only just going to wait around until he comes again. That's what Paul rebuked the Thessalonians for. He told him, he said, go to work. Care about the things of this earth. Invest. But do it as members of the unshakable kingdom, not the shakable one. So what does that mean? Well, it means, let's just use these same categories that Raymond Brown gave us. What it means is this. It means that 
We participate in politics. We care about that. Yeah. We care about social pressures. We seek to avert economic hazards. We, we lament religious apostasy. We bemoan physical hardship. We decry moral decay. We do. But we do not despair when any or all of those things don't go according to our desires. Why? According to this text, here's why. Because the same heaven and earth that shook when Jesus died and rose from the grave is the same heaven and earth that will shake when he returns again. And all that is not eternal will melt away. And all that is will remain. Every wrong will be made right. Every sad thing will come untrue. Every sin and sorrow will be abolished. And we will reign with him. This is crazy. I don't even know what this is going to look like. This is mysterious. But we will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And we are so convinced of that. We are so convinced of this reality, of this unseen and unshakable kingdom, that we live different. We live different. He actually tells us here in verse 28. We live lives of worship and gratitude. He says, therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Daniel, another prophet of the Lord in the Old Testament, received a, a vision from the Lord. And he wrote this in Daniel 7, 14. He says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when we read Daniel 7, 14 and we compare it and, and marry it to Hebrews 12, 28, we are a people of deep thanksgiving and worship. Because we go, that's the kingdom that we inherited. That's the kingdom that we have received. It's not going anywhere. It's an everlasting kingdom and dominion. I talked with a pastor earlier this week, and you'll hear our conversation actually because uh, we were recording a, a new, one of a, a many new episodes for our new Digging Deeper series we'll release in a few weeks. And as I was talking with him, he just made this statement in the context of our conversation. He said, um, he said, if, if Thanksgiving doesn't permeate the Christian's life, then that should be a red flag to our spiritual maturity. And he said, I'm not just saying that to you guys. He said, I'm saying it to me because as I survey my prayers, I realize I am woefully saddened by how little I pray with Thanksgiving. When we understand that we're a part of an unshakable kingdom because of an unshakable king, even in the midst of all kinds of shaken realities, we can still be a people of thanksgiving and a people of worship to glorify this God who would rescue us and bring us into such a kingdom, to do so with awe and with reverence, to do so with godly fear. If we're afraid of anything, it's God. You know, think about this. The posture of the world, please connect these dots, okay? The posture of the world, meaning those who don't know Jesus, the posture of the world is such that it's, it's fear, it's panic, it's anxiety and worry. Is everything around us is shaking. If the posture of the church is the same, then how is Jesus attractive to them? 
If we in the church are also going, oh, panic, worry, anxiety, fear, oh, what's gonna happen? I don't, I don't, I don't know. And, and yet at the same time, we're saying, isn't Jesus wonderful? They're going, but where's the difference? And how we live. Because we're so fearful of shaken realities, we're not presenting them the fear of God, of the unshakable reality of his kingdom. We have to be set apart, unique, different exiles. Why? Well, because God is a consuming fire. Look at verse 29. He just says it clear as day. For our God is a consuming fire. The fourth and final point briefly here is this. Learn who God is. Learn who God is. Study God. That's what theology means, the study of God. Study him, know him. Learn our God. Know, yes, he is a consuming fire. I mean, this is the author of Hebrews reminding us of Deuteronomy 4.24 where Moses said this very phrase. He said, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And he said that in the context of the Israelites given yet again to idolatry. And the author of Hebrews is reminding us, look, there's only one God. This power, ex powerful, exclusive God, it's only him. And only him who is to be worshipped. He will not tolerate idolatry. He is a consuming fire. I want us to sit in that for just a moment. Because if God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, then two things should rise up within us. One, we should be terrified at some level. Because if God is a consuming fire, it means that in the light of his fire, we're exposed in our sin. We can't hide, we can't pretend, we are who we are in the presence of a God who is who he is. And God in his consuming fire reveals our sin, and if we're not in Christ, the fire that exposes us becomes the fire that consumes us in righteous judgment. But it should also not just terrify us, but if you're in Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, it should comfort us. The fact that Jesus, that God is a consuming fire, it points us to the reality that yes, I'm exposed in my sin, but Jesus took my sin to the cross. And instead of me being consumed, he was consumed. And so I don't have to live in fear anymore. I get to rejoice. And this God who, yes, is a consuming fire is not going to consume me. He's actually going to refine me and make me more and more like Jesus. And as he refines me, he promises me, I'll come back. And I won't just refine you. I'll refine all things. I'll make all things new. And what's shakable will be gone and what's unshakable will remain. And you will reign with me forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And for that, we worship. We worship, and here's the application of the text. We live like it. We live like the unshakable kingdom is real. I want you to consider two things as I close. How would your life experience be different if you lived out daily a reality of thanksgiving and worship? How would your life experience be different if that was the posture every day, thanksgiving and worship in, real, in, in, uh, in view of the unshakable kingdom of God? Here's the second question, though. This one's a little harder. How would others' lives 
their life experience? How would their life experiences be different because you live every day with a posture of thanksgiving and worship? I think it would be drastically different, both our lives and those around us. So may we live like we are residents of the unshakable kingdom of God. Father, help us in that endeavor. Strengthen us to be able to do just that. Help us to be a people. Help us to be a people who are indeed set apart. Not frantic like the rest of the world, but secure. As we look to you, the eternal nature of your kingdom. Fill us indeed with thanksgiving and worship as we consider what you've done for us and what we consider what you will do for us when you come again. Even now, would you be would you be worshipped as we sing to you? May we be able to do it, as you said in this passage, acceptable worship with awe and reverence. May we do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.